Welcome, and thanks for listening to AGI SureTrack Coffee Talk. Today's episode is investing in a food secure tomorrow. Here's your host, Laura Hankey. All right. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate that. Good morning, everyone. And good morning, JJ. Thanks for joining us here this week for Coffee Talk. Sure. Thanks, Laura, for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're excited to get started here this morning and learn a little bit about um, NIAA and what your organization has to offer. So to get us started here, JJ, go ahead and share with us the mission of the National Institute of Animal Agriculture, as well as who the organization serves. The National Institute for Animal Agriculture is an organization that brings leaders from across the depth and breadth of animal agriculture together to explore, discuss, learn, and collaborate around issues that are facing the future of the value supply chain in animal agriculture as part of today's food system. And and the three words that I always like to highlight for folks that are very purposeful are explore, discuss, learn, and then collaborate because in our mind that's really the continuum of what we do together uh, through the mission of the national institute for animal agriculture great well you know it's my understanding niaa is the successor to the livestock conservation institute and in a sense this initiative is not new by any stretch of the imagination why was the decision made to shift gears if you will and how are the organizations different Sure. So the Livestock Conservation Institute, when it was formed uh, nearly over 100 years ago, they had a very specific mission to learn more about, through research and education, specific zoonotic diseases that affected the livestock industry. And their goal then, of course, after learning about those diseases and, and conducting the research, was to either eliminate or at least mitigate those uh, pathogens. And by the mid-1990s, the organization had actually uh, been able to stamp, if you will, mission accomplished on uh, the file folder of the organization. And so that's when the board of directors took a step back and said, okay, is it time for the Livestock Conservation Institute to sunset completely as an organization? Or are there other areas of animal agriculture that still need attention and work? And that's when the board said, there are always going to be topics or issues that face, again, the depth and breadth of animal agriculture. And so they said, yes, the organization should continue. But instead of being the Livestock Conservation Institute, we're also going to use this time as an opportunity to rebrand ourselves to the National Institute for Animal Agriculture. So while the original intent of the organization was accomplished, the organization continues on to be to be that place where again, we can uh, explore and discuss and learn and collaborate on the, the host of issues that we face within our part of the food system. And collaboration is such a key piece of what you're doing there with NIAA. It, it really is such a unique collaboration of research and innovation, both on the human side, as well as the livestock health side. Talk about the One Health Initiative, JJ, and what it means for both human health and livestock well-being. Sure. So, so One Health is the idea that uh, in the environment, really, whether it's around uh, our physical health and well-being, our mental health and well-being, environmental health and well-being, and, and the list could go on and on, that we really need to recognize the interconnectivity between humans, animals, and the planet or the environment that we live in. And so a little over 10 years ago, the National Institute for Animal Agriculture really identified with the leadership of our board of directors and members that 
not only the use of antimicrobials, but also the responsible stewardship of them when it comes to antimicrobial resistance was really a one health issue that yes, there are things we can do on our farms and our ranches and our veterinary clinics to be better stewards of antimicrobials and to combat antimicrobial resistance, for example. But if we didn't look at that through a one health lens, so also thinking about what's happening in human health and environmental health, it really wasn't going to be as successful as it really should or could be. And so that is one area where NIAA has been a, a leader in One Health initiatives is when it comes to antimicrobial stewardship and resistance. But then it's also caused us to look at other aspects of life, if you will, or animal agriculture, especially in, in life, uh, through that One Health lens. So thinking about, for example, sustainability. Yes, it's about environmental impact, but it's also about our social sustainability and our economic sustainability. So One Health is a very key component of the way in NIAA convenes leaders around various topics within animal agriculture. Mm -hmm. And it's so great to hear you include those other two components or pillars, if you will, of sustainability. You know, so often we hear about the environmental component, but we don't necessarily hear about the social and the economic. And really to achieve sustainability, we must have all three working together and intersecting. And so, you know, the work that you're doing with NIAA and certainly what's happening with One Health is making that happen. And so that all leads perfectly into our discussion of food safety here, or excuse me, food security here this morning, JJ, you know, talk about the innovation and the technology that is created within the livestock tech or the, the livestock space, excuse me. You know, it's, it's undeniable that it's a common denominator of modern agriculture and of course, food safety. You know, we've had the opportunity to discuss some of the findings that your team has had in recent research. Share those with us and where we are today in livestock technology development. Sure. So uh, common statistics that many of us in the food and agriculture space have been hearing and discussing for a number of years now are the numbers 9 billion and 2050. So the, obviously the concept is that by the year 2050, there are going to be 9 billion global citizens who not only are requiring higher quantities of safe, wholesome, nutritious foods, but also higher qualities of safe, wholesome, nutritious foods. And so really, when you look at the food and agritech space, if you will, so that entire continuum to use uh, nomenclature that we've often heard, you know, from gate to plate or farm to fork or ranch to rail, however you want to describe it, um, is this idea that there's been significant investment throughout the value chain um, by private capital and venture capital groups to really look at how do we continue to evolve a food system that meets the needs of a growing population, while also back to our earlier conversation is more sustainable economically, socially and environmentally. And so one of the, the exercises that uh, we did a few years, a couple of years ago now was to really look at where is animal agriculture, if you will, in that uh, overall investment portfolio of food and agritech? And what we were able to dissect out through publicly available information. So I, I say that because obviously there's private investment that happens that oftentimes is not shared publicly. But even with what was shared publicly is one, we're seeing significant growth over the last three years in terms of total dollars invested in food and agritech. 
Now, as one might imagine, the bulk of those dollars do tend to still be closer to the consumer. So it is in the areas of new product development or food safety, food security type um, innovations. But then when you start to look at closer to the farm and ranch level or the veterinary clinic level, um, what we identified is that the vast majority of dollars are really going more towards the crop side of the equation. And we thought that was interesting because at least in the United States, if we look at USDA economic research data, gross receipts, which we tried to compare apples to apples here. So if we're talking about dollars invested, we wanted to look at dollars uh, received through gross receipts. Gross receipts for livestock and crops in the U.S. are about equal. So they're um, uh, in our world or in our mind, you know, uh, equal industry segments, if you will. And so the easy hypothesis would be that the in dollars invested in innovation and technology should be about equal, um, but they're not. And so that has caused us to really start uh, socializing some conversations within the food and agriculture space uh, affected by animal agriculture about how do we increase innovation and technology through increased investment in animal agriculture. So um, I could go on and on because this is a topic we've been uh, exploring and, and forgive the word or the vernacular of geeking out over uh, the last couple of years. But to us, it's really fascinating as we think about to your earlier point, earlier point, Laura, how do we ensure food security? And also while doing that, making sure that animal agriculture, which is such a great complete protein is part of that food security equation. Absolutely. And, and you make such an important point there, JJ. You know, it, it, I don't think it's geeking out at all. I think it's certainly a necessity that we need to be looking at. Um, you know, on my mind, when I go through the, the grocery line at the, the grocery store every week, I'm thinking of affordability as well, mm -hmm. you know, quality, exactly. quantity, but what is this technology doing for affordability? You know, protein is a staple on every table and something that we know that we need how is this technology going to keep things affordable and, and in the lack of what's going to happen? You know, and, and if I can, again, Laura, to, to geek out some more there, I, I, in fact, it's sitting right behind me on my desk. Uh, today's Wall Street Journal had an article about uh, dairies, especially in California, and just with the drought happening with uh, feed cost rising with labor cost rising, you know, there's so many issues that are affecting uh, not only affordability for the consumer, but obviously profitability and viability for the farmers and ranchers and allied industry from each mm -hmm. sector. Um, and we could, you know, this article happened to be about the dairy sector, but we know that's also affecting uh, beef and poultry and pork and eggs and other uh, spaces within animal agriculture. And, and we do see that as a great opportunity to look at how can greater innovation and technology affect feed cost, labor cost, food safety issues, um, worker health and safety beyond just their day-to-day -day jobs, et cetera. So there are a lot of sectors of animal agriculture uh, that to use a, a food and agri-tech term are ripe for disruption. And in our mind, as opposed to having outside forces, if you will, influence or affect that disruption, how can we as animal agriculture leaders come together and disrupt ourselves, really? So that way we know that we're using good information, um, boots on the ground type knowledge as we're disrupting our space. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, and as we've moved away from diversified farming operations, I think it's easy to disconnect to the, the livestock side and the grain production side. But, you know, to your point of the dairy situation that you read about in the Wall Street Journal, you know, we're hearing about nitrogen prices across mm -hmm. the row crop sector. And that's certainly going to trickle down to what we see in livestock feeding costs. Um, you know, another example, last spring when I bought a bag of brome seed, it was $186. That same bag this fall because of the drought conditions was over 400. You know, these are all things that factor into the price that we see at the grocery store, but aren't necessarily attributed to that. And mm -hmm. technology plays such an important role in all of these things, you know, better crops, you know, better ability to grow and produce. How do we begin to break some of these barriers down? Well, I guess, first of all, what are some of the barriers that are identified? And then how do we go about breaking those down? Sure. So, uh, you know, I think one of the things that we identified anyway as a barrier is that uh, not only, like you mentioned, Laura, the, the specialty of crops versus livestock that is now part of our, our food and agricultural system. But if we even look at the livestock side, you know, we, we tend to be fairly integrated by species or sector. And so we may not always have that opportunity to think about, well, what's happening in the swine sector that could affect or be key learnings for the poultry sector or what's happening in aquaculture that we could learn um, for the beef sector or, 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 you know, you can really start to, to put a Venn diagram with a lot of circles and, and, and lap, uh, crossover there together. And so I think one of the barriers there is just that we sometimes get in our individual spaces of, of either by species or by sector of the value chain. And we have to find ways to come together and learn from one another because, um, I would also say a barrier is a shift in our way of thinking. And what I mean by that is, I grew up at a time in animal agriculture where your number one competitor was another protein within the animal agriculture space. So I happened to grow up on a cow-calf operation. So we tended to think about we need to promote beef as opposed to other animal-derived proteins. I would almost propose that today the shift is not that animal agriculture's competitor is the various species or animal ag proteins, but it's the alternative proteins. Um, because through innovation and technology, consumers have a lot more choices when they go to um, the grocery store or go to a restaurant. And so we have to find ways to ensure that our products derive from animal agriculture. We know they're a great complete protein, but we also have to demonstrate that they are still affordable, that they are environmentally conscious, that they are socially responsible. You know, there's just a lot more tick boxes, if you will, that we have to really demonstrate to um, influencers and those who affect consumer purchasing decisions that this is still your one of your best options, if not the best option. I'm biased, so I would say it's the best option when you go to uh, prepare a, fam a dinner for your family or loved ones. So I think that's probably a couple, those are a couple of the largest barriers I would identify as sometimes one, we get in on our individual species or sector silos. We have to look across animal agriculture to learn from one another and collaborate more. But then also we have to shift our mindset to the fact that it's no longer beef versus pork versus chicken versus fish. It's now how do those of us in animal agriculture think about competing together against alternative proteins and that share of purchasing power. And I would also say social license. Of course, you know, we all have to be in this as a partnership together 
to move forward. And Mm -hmm. that's a great point that you make. So as an organization, how does NIAA prepare itself to do that? Um, You know, what does your messaging look like moving into 2022? And, you know, especially in regards to these alternative proteins. And then you work with, correct me if I'm wrong, you worked with uh, producers as well to help with some of that messaging. What does that look like? How do you even begin those conversations, JJ? Sure. So I think we are a mission-driven organization. So the first thing we always think about is how are we bringing people together, whether that's in person or or now virtually, because like so many through the last couple of years, we've become much more attuned to Zoom and Teams and WebEx and other online platforms. But whether it's in person, virtually or hybrid, how do we continue to, to follow our mission by bringing folks together from across the value chain, across species sectors of animal agriculture to explore, discuss, learn, and then collaborate on topics like increased investment, expanded technology and innovation, et cetera, within the animal agriculture space. So that's something we're excited about in 2022 is we'll continue to convene via our annual conference, via our antibiotics symposium, but then also looking at how do we bring folks together to talk about increased investment for greater innovation and technology within animal agriculture. So we'll have several uh, uh, timeframes, if you will, or spaces where folks will come together and and begin to look at, uh, I would say the first stage of that, we, we need to explore and discuss because we're still in a learning curve and, and it may be towards the end of 2022 or beyond where we're really prepared to say, now that we've explored and we've discussed and we've learned, now we can start to collaborate on action items. And that's really then too, when I would say true to NIA's mission, our members and partners then take that knowledge and, and use it in their respective spaces. So as they're visiting with uh, policymakers and regulators, or as they're visiting with influencers and consumers, they have that knowledge uh, that was derived from NIAA. Mm-hmm. And so do those explorations and discussions make the space more inviting to potential investors? In our mind, yes, uh, because that's another thing we see that a lot of times, while there are a handful of venture capital firms, for example, that have a very um, robust history and knowledge level about animal agriculture, there's a significant, if not the supermajority of venture capital uh, firms and, and leaders who they have a great desire to learn more about animal agriculture, but they just don't know where to turn to yet. And so by us inviting them into the conversation, so A, we can learn from them, what are they looking for in their investments? But then B, we can also share, here's what we need. Here are the true issues that farmers and ranchers and veterinarians are facing when they're uh, raising and, and, and caring for livestock that are going to enter into our food system. So inviting them into those conversations and having that two-way conversation is how we believe we'll move it, uh, this, this needle for, or to the right place, if you will, move the ball forward, move the needle to the right place uh, to increase innovation and technology within animal agriculture. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it seems like in the livestock sector, even more so in the crop sector, things are still very much segmented. Um, you know, you have swine and poultry that are vertically integrated. Beef, of course, is not. You know, talk about how you start to build a, a working relationship between those three sectors when, of course, you know, we know that in the United States today, the average cow herd size is around 40 head. So that's a lot of different producers to convene and work with and help to perpetuate this message. How do you start to bring those people together, JJ, and, and work cohesively as one unit to, you know, combat some of this messaging from alternative proteins? 
Sure. I think you, you hit the nail on the head with the final uh, phrase there, alternative proteins. And what I mean by that is we have to come together to think about how do we continue to demonstrate that when it comes to protein in our diet, animal agriculturally divide, derived proteins are still uh, king. Um, they're a complete protein. They're environmentally friendly. They're completely sustainable, whether we're looking at environment, social, or economic factors. And, and so that's the first thing. If we can identify why we're coming together, which is to, to protect animal agriculture's social license as a protein of choice, um, Simon Sinek always says, if you start with why, then it's much easier to start to talk about what and how. So if we can convene folks around our why, which is to protect animal agriculture, social license in the protein equation of our diet and health, um, that will be the first step. And then I think the second step of bringing this diverse group of players together is recognizing that there's going to continue to be space for everyone. That as we look at the 9 billion plus mouths to feed in our world in a sustainable, healthy, affordable, nutritious way. We're going to need all types of animal-derived protein, whether that's by species, by uh, size and scope of operation, by business operational model, whatever the case may be. Um, yes, there's going to be differences, but first and foremost, we have to demonstrate that animal-derived protein is still the preferred protein uh, in our diet and to protect our social license. And so if we can keep our, our eye on that goal first and our why, uh, then we can begin to have the more difficult conversations of the what and how, but we'll always go back to that why first. Well, definitely an important why and a necessary why as we move forward with more mouths to feed across the globe. And so as we look at wrapping up here this morning, JJ, what are some of the goals and the initiatives your team has on the horizon for 2022? Sure. So um, we're going to continue to build upon our, our rich history of convening the depth and breadth of animal agriculture to really uh, be that think tank, if you will, uh, that comes together to explore and discuss and learn and collaborate. And, and we'll do that through our traditional means like our annual conference. And we'll be gearing up for the 12th annual NIAA Antibiotic Symposium. We'll also be, as we uh, talked about earlier, convening um, uh, groups around innovation and in technology in animal agriculture and how we enhance that. We've also launched a new program uh, that will kick off in early 2022, which is an advanced training for animal agriculture leaders. And so one of the things that the board of directors identified in late 2020 during a strategic planning process is that we have some great leadership development programs, again, by species or sector of the value chain. What we don't have is a leadership program version, maybe 2.0, that brings people together so that, again, whether it's by species or sector of the value value chain, they can learn and collaborate together. And, and we see this as a way of, of uh, walking the talk. So as we've identified that there is a need to really think about animal agriculture working more collectively to combat alternative proteins, if you will, um, how do we make sure that we're learning together through an advanced leadership program? So that will also kick off, as I mentioned, in early 2022. And then, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we have several of our councils, such as the Animal Identification and Information Systems Council, Global Animal Health and Emerging Disease, and several others that not only only meet at annual conference, but meet regularly throughout the year to, to try to look into and use the collective insights and knowledge of our members and partners to, to have, I guess you'd say, a crystal ball to try to think about what's coming down the road that animal agriculture should be exploring and discussing and learning about together. 
So two very intriguing components that you mentioned. I'm very interested in learning more about the leadership program. So what does that model look like, JJ? Um, is that a, a messaging model or you know, what does that look like? So it'd be yes and. And what I mean by that is obviously in, in today's age, communications is key. Uh, so how do we communicate better is always going to be any comp component of a leadership model or continuum. So the idea is that this will be a, um, a program that brings together 20 uh, leaders from across animal agriculture who participate in a 16 to 18 month program. Uh, it will be both in person and virtual. And the idea, though, will be that there will be certain aspects and, and folks can learn more on our website, too, uh, at animalagriculture.org. But the idea is, again, that they will identify topics and issues that they will explore throughout that 16 to 18 month uh, curriculum that will then form a case study at the end. So it'll be a lot like um, an executive master's uh, uh, in business administration type program where it's not only theoretical, but actually thinking about how do you apply uh, knowledge and skills around professional and personal development, um, critical thinking, relationship building, and communications and leadership into a practical real-world example that you can take back to your sector of animal agriculture or to your specific organization that you work with or for. And so, again, the, the, the initial cohort will convene in early 2022 and, and go through that process. And then there will also be the way it's designed when we start the 2023 cohort. Of course, there will be some overlap with the first cohort. And so there can be some shared learnings between cohorts as well. But as I mentioned, the uh, I could talk about it ad nauseum, but the full curriculum continuum and outline are on our website and we'd sure love to have people visit and, and check that out and, and see if it's something they're interested in. Oh, for sure. Yeah. We would love to share that as well. So, oh, you know, you. The, the other, all were very exciting to hear um, that you have on the horizon for 2022, but the other very interesting piece to me was the animal identification. And I think that we all understand that there are some gaps in traceability mm -hmm. that exist within the livestock sector. Talk a little bit more about that. Is that species uh, specific or is that across the board? No. So that is across the board. The Animal Identification Information Systems Council is across the board. And the idea there, of course, is, as you mentioned, Lauren, is to look at, or excuse me, Laura, is to look at not only gaps, but where might there be uh, challenges that we need to overcome? Because I, one thing I think is important to always keep in mind is really when we're talking about animal identification information systems, there's two purposes or reasons for any program. One, of course, is disease tracing and eradication or, or management, but then there's also the value added component. And and you would use the systems while there may be some overlap, you would also use them distinctly. And so that's one of the things that that council has really worked on is trying to keep those conversations headed in the right direction, if you will, or keep those conversations deliberative. And so that's a time where people can come together and, and learn about new technologies, discuss the challenges or opportunities that may be out there. And, and again, true to the NIAA mission, think about how we collaborate across species and throughout the value chain to to make sure that as animal identification and information systems are developed and commercialized and utilized, that they're done so in a, in a very useful and responsible way, whether it's for disease traceability and management or for value added systems within, in, within a species sector. 
Yeah. And that all goes back to affordability, of course, as well. Mm -hmm. You know, when we think about the value that just simple QR codes have brought to many, many uh, consumer items, especially in the coffee industry, to think of what could become of that in the beef industry is very exciting to me because, you know, how great is it to tell a story by scanning a QR code on your phone? And, and to link that producer back to a package of meat. I mean, it, it just doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, well, and I think you hit the nail on the head too there, uh, Laura, because it was, oh gosh, now six years ago that uh, Deloitte and the Food Marketing Institute uh, introduced a, a new consumer decision-making model where uh, historically we know that many of us, when we were going out to eat or going to the grocery store, it was price, taste, and convenience that that drove our decision-making. But now there's several other factors, and one of which is that experience. And so like you mm-hmm. said, whether it's scanning a QR code or having a waiter tell you the farmer or ranch that your steak or pork chop or chicken breast or filet of fish or your uh, rack of lamb and uh, came from, that's a part of that experience now. And so we do have to think about for those that want a value added product, how do we make sure that the information um, that's being shared is accurate and is going throughout the supply chain? Um, But then how do we also make sure that when we do have a a disease outbreak um, or something that needs to be tracked for for animal health purposes that we also have good information and boy there's there's a lot of information that can be captured and shared and and uh, so then there's therefore a lot to discuss in that area Absolutely. And and while there's a lot of information to capture and discuss and share, there are also a lot of programs working together simultaneously yes. today to do that. <laughs> um, you know, and, and data security, of course, is top of mind for mm-hmm. all of those. And, you know, while there's been some aversion to uh, traceability in the past and some of those programs, do you think as an industry across the board, all species, um, do you think that producers are coming around to that? So we partnered with Farm Journal Media earlier this year on um, some research that they had done. We were uh, simply helping get the word out um, about the research. And, and there are a significant number of producers. This specifically looked at the, the beef, dairy, and pork space who, who do see the value of um, animal identification and traceability systems, again, for different reasons, but they're seeing overall that yes, there, there is most likely not only a need, but also a demand from whether it's consumers or regulators who have a, a charge around disease tracing and, and management um, for animal identification and traceability. So that's my long-winded way of saying yes, that we're seeing more and more farmers and ranchers and veterinarians um, move towards that, that view that yes, there's a need. Now, as they always say, the devil's in the details, because we do know there's still areas where we have issues to overcome or gaps in in technology or or information to overcome. And so uh, that's uh, another reason that the Animal Identification and Information Systems Council continues to convene regularly is so we can continue to move forward collectively. Yes. Well, exciting news and information to move into the new year on for sure. Well, excellent. And thank you, Laura, for inviting us to have a conversation here this morning over uh, a cup of coffee. And and we look forward to working with you down the road. Yes, absolutely. We certainly look forward to working with you as well. You know, any final thoughts here this morning, JJ, that anything that I haven't asked? 
Uh, no, nothing. Uh, I mean, we could keep covering a lot of topics as we We know, could talk I, all day. Yeah, couldn't we, we could talk all day about animal <laughs> agriculture. I mean, that's what I'm I'm around to do. But no, I think we hit on a lot of areas that I would just close out by saying um, I made the comment earlier in 2021 that I'm still very bullish about animal agriculture, pun intended, uh, because again, as as we look at a global society that's that's hungry, literally for high quality protein, uh, we know animal agriculture has a great story to tell and a great product to provide. And so we just want to do our part in ensuring that um, animal animal agriculturally derived protein continues to be uh, the protein of choice on on consumers' plates here in the U.S. and around the world. All right. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap up this morning's conversation. Brian, we're ready to hand things back to you. Thanks for joining us for AGI SureTrack Coffee Talk. Connect with us on the web at agisuretrackcommunity.com.